we have um, quite a bit to cover and uh, not much time to do it. So let's pray and ask his uh, blessing upon us as we go to his word. Heavenly Father, once again, we are humbled and amazed at your love to us. Love so amazing, love so divine, indeed demands and requires our all. I do pray now that you would come by your spirit, the spirit of love, and that you would lovingly open our eyes that we might see the glories of Christ. Open our ears that we might hear the wonders of Christ. Open our hearts that we might receive afresh, even now, the love that is Jesus Christ. Might he become a new Christ to us even this morning, even this very hour, according to your spirit. Illuminate these words in our hearing. In Jesus' name, amen. We continue this morning in our trek through 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the first eight verses, as we look at this awesome and amazing doctrine of the love of God and the love that we are called to have for one another. I'm amazed oftentimes as you look into the scriptures with any kind of intent and you find over and over again that the more intently you look into the scriptures, the more intently the scriptures will look into you. And you'll find yourselves that if you study the scriptures with any type of faith or any type of sobriety, you'll find this to be true. It's especially true when it comes to understanding this wonderful doctrine in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 called love. You know, there's a danger in looking at this passage of Scripture. There's a danger in looking at 1 Corinthians 13 because we are all so familiar with it. And because we are so familiar with it, we tend to want to dismiss it because we think that we know it so well. Whether we have been Christians for 10 years or even 10 minutes, we know some part, if not all, of what the Bible here says about love. It is found so commonly in the vernacular of our society that anywhere where love is mentioned sooner or later, somebody will begin to talk about the words that are found here in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. It is to be found on uh, secular greeting cards as soon as you will find it on Christian ones. The unbelieving secular person is just as quick to have these words on their wall at home as is the believing Christian. There are a few places where love is discussed that these words are not part of the discussion. And yet, as we have noted before and again, as we will note again this morning, that the issue is not simply knowing what these words say, but actually knowing what they mean. The issue 
is that putting these words in the proper context of the Bible, in the proper context of who Jesus is, in the proper context of what the gospel is, in the proper context of who we are, to look at love in this proper context is not only to say what the Bible says, but more importantly is to to know what the Bible means. For I'm convinced that we all believe that we are loving this morning. If we were to take a poll this morning, I am quite sure that there is hardly anyone in here who would stand up and say that I am a hateful person. But we all believe ourselves to be loving people. However, as I have been looking at this passage of Scripture over the last few weeks, and I hope it is true for you as well, as you look at this passage of Scripture and begin to really examine what love truly is and then place that up against your own heart, if you are anything like me, you're beginning to say that I'm not as loving as I thought I was. There is not as much love in my heart as I thought. Last week we were challenged with what love is. Love is patient and love is kind. This week we are challenged with what love is not. Love is not envious. Love is not boastful. Love is not arrogant. And love is not rude. You know, the uniqueness of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, insofar as it speaks about this love, is that the Bible here describes love more than it defines it. We might be tempted to come to the Bible and ask for a definition of love, but to define love is akin to trying to define mother. Because I'm quite confident that if we were to ask the question, define mother for me, we'd get various different answers and we'd be hard-pressed to come with a concrete definition. But inevitably what would happen is that rather than define mother, we would begin to describe what mother is. We all have our understanding and description of what a mother is. Isn't it interesting we come to the scriptures. The Bible here is not so much defining love as it describes it. It gives the characteristics of it. It tells us what love does. It tells us what love does not do. And last week we saw positively that the Bible says love is Patient, love acts patiently. Love is kind. This week, it shifts for us away from the positive affirmations of what love is, and it describes love in negative terms, telling us what love is not. And just as with Patience and kindness. 
here the Bible speaks and even challenges our hearts and ultimately exposes our sin and weaknesses. Just as last week the Bible said that love must be patient. And the Bible says that love must be kind. So this week we are challenged with the fact that love, true love, simply must not be envious. True love must not be boastful, must not be prideful, must not, cannot be rude. Love cannot produce these things. In other words, as we saw last week, if love is a tree, it must produce the good fruit of patience and kindness. It cannot produce the bad fruit of envy and boasting and arrogance and rudeness. Love cannot produce that fruit any more than an orange tree can produce apples or a pear tree. And grow grapes. And so we see this morning that the Bible is not telling us initially what love is, it's reminding us of what it is not. These are the characteristics that are not to be found in someone who says, that they love. It says here that love is not envious. Some of your translations may read that love is not jealous. We may not think much of it, beloved, but envy and jealousy are deadly sins. They are deadly sins. Jonathan Edwards said that envy may be defined to be a spirit of dissatisfaction with and opposition to the prosperity and happiness of others as compared with our own. As compared with our own. It is the attitude and and action of coveting what others have and desiring it for ourselves. To the point where you desire them not to have it anymore. It's an attitude that manifests itself in material things, relational things, positional things, political situations, and even spiritual ones. It is foolhardy jealousy. It is foolhardy jealousy which has no tolerance for rival or competition or opposition. Now, before we unpack what the Bible says that love is not here in this text, it is important that we make note of this important truth. And that is there is a good type of jealousy. That you look in the scriptures and you will find that even in the scriptures, jealousy is not always a bad thing. In fact, in fact, in some cases, jealousy is actually a loving act, an attitude, an action. The Bible says in Exodus chapter 20 and and verse 5, as God has given his people the Ten Commandments, and he tells them that they are not to have any other gods before him. He says, because I am a jealous God. 
God is jealous for the worship of his people. He is not tolerating rivals. He wants all of our affections. He wants all of our love. He wants all of our worship. Why? Because it is not only glorious to him, but he understands that that is good for us. He desires our good. And so he's jealous for his worship amongst his people. So we understand that that's a good jealousy. We also understand that any man should be jealous for the affections of his wife. Shouldn't tolerate rivals in her for her affection. Any woman should not tolerate rivals for the love and attention and passion of her husband. A man should be jealous for the love of his wife. In fact, the Bible reminds us in Proverbs of chapter 6 that if you are inclined to chase after another man's wife, you need to be very careful because he is, going to be, he is not going to tolerate it and nor is he going to accept apology. He's not looking for compensation. Rightly so. Likewise, a woman should be jealous for the affection and attention of her husband. Shouldn't have to tolerate any type of rivalry or competition in that area. So there is a good jealousy in the Bible. But overwhelmingly, overwhelmingly, when the Bible speaks of envy, when the Bible speaks of jealousy, beloved, it is speaking of the hellish and the frequent sinful and destructive result of it. Envy is listed among the sins that manifest the unrighteousness of humanity. When God in Romans chapter 1 is laying out the indictment against humanity and the sins that are manifested in the world, do you know that envy is included in them? Romans chapter 1 and verse 29. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, full of envy. In Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21, where the Bible is giving us there the works of the flesh, that war against the spirit, included in the works of the flesh are envy and jealousy. Now the works of the flesh are evident, the Bible says. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, Rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies. Notice, notice that envy and jealousy are put in the same list with sexual immorality, idolatry, anger and hatred, rivalries, drunkenness, orgies. And there is envy. Why is that so true? Well, if you were just to give a cursory view of the scriptures and just begin to look in the scriptures where the sin of envy had manifested itself and the results of it, you would absolutely be amazed. We don't have time to go over all of them, but let me just give you a few. 
the beginning in Genesis, Eve was envious of God. Caused her to partake of the forbidden fruit. We know the results of that. Cain was envious of Abel having accepted, having God had accepted Abel's worship, and it ended up with Cain slain, killing his brother. Joseph's brothers were envious of him, caused them to sell him into slavery. Saul was envious of David and pursued David all over the countryside with the intent of destroying the man of God. You know that Mark chapter 15 reminds us that the chief priests were envious of Jesus and therefore turned him over to Pilate. Envious. Jesus in the parable The prodigal son reminds us toward the end there that the older brother was envious of the younger brother. In Acts chapter 5, verse 17 through 18, the Bible reminds us that the Jewish leaders were envious of the apostles. Beloved, here, here is one. That should cause us all to pause this this morning. Second Timothy chapter four and verse ten. Paul said of Demas that he has departed because he has loved this present world. Apparently, Demas had become envious of the world. Demas had looked upon this present world and had become envious, desirous of this world and had left Paul and the faith. Pursue the world. Here is the real danger of envy, beloved. It undermines our faith. It corrodes our faith in Christ. It corrodes our love for Christ. It turns our affections. Demas, who once professed to love Christ, envied the world. And as the psalmist says in Psalm 73, Demas saw the prosperity of the wicked. Envied. And pursued it. This is the danger of envy, beloved. That it turns our loving from Christ to loving the world. And we're all susceptible, folks. We're all susceptible to it. We all get jealous. We all get envious. We get envious over those things that we desire. I'm not envious over the macaroni and cheese that you have in front of you, but you put some meatloaf there. We get envious over those things that we desire, and we all desire things. We are desirous people. None of us are immune to envy and jealousy. This is deadly, beloved. It is deadly to our hearts. It is most unloving because it causes us not to love those whom we should love, but actually to hate them. Not to wish them well, but to wish them ill. The 
because of envy, we find ourselves gossiping. Because of envy, we find ourselves easily angered. Because of envy, our conversations are not edifying. Because of envy, our conversations are not uplifting. Our hearts are turned away from loving others and loving Christ and turned to loving ourselves. That's why it's so evil. That's why it's such a sin. We all are susceptible to it. Don't think your pastors are not. Pastors are susceptible to envy. I just returned from a conference up in Chicago and there was hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of pastors. And pastors have a way of having conversations that just promote envy. As soon as you meet somebody, the first conversation, how many people you got in church this week? Got any books coming out lately? Where are you traveling to and preaching? These conversations do nothing to uplift the heart, beloved. They are not edifying at all. All of us are susceptible to it, beloved. So are you. Preachers in particular, imagine. My wife, we go to a conference and we're riding back from the conference and my wife said, man, did you hear that great sermon by so-and-so and so-and-so? I said, well, you never say anything about my sermons. That's my first thought. You never, you never mentioned how great I preach. What about the preacher sermon I preached last Sunday? You never said a word. I'm just kidding. A little bit. We all are susceptible to it. Suppose I, I come to my wife and I say, wow, did you see the dress that so-and-so had on? That was nice. I know her first thought. You never comment on my dress. <laughs> Tell the truth and shame the devil, Don. Because we all are susceptible to it, beloved. We envy all the time. We envy other people's marriages. We envy other people's relationships. We envy their children. We envy their gifts. We envy their talents. We envy their recreation, the places that they are able to go that we can't. We, we envy their reputation, how other people think of them and how people perceive them and how well they are thought of. We envy their ability to operate within the realm of the scriptures and their spiritual understanding of things. We envy, we envy, we envy. And yet the Bible says, that is not love. That is not loving at all. Matthew Henry puts it this way, love is not grieved at the good of others. Love is not grieved at the good of others, neither at their gifts nor at their good qualities, neither at their honors nor at their estates. It's not grieved when others are complimented. It's not grieved when others are awarded. 
It's not grieved when others are recommended. It's not grieved when others receive attention and notoriety. It's not grieved when others are spoken of. But not only is love not envious and jealous, the Bible says here also that love is not boastful or arrogant. Meaning, literally meaning that love does not brag without foundation. Doesn't parade itself about. It's not puffed up. True love, biblical love, the Bible's love is, is no, knows nothing of this incessant self-promotion that we often see so common today. True love knows, knows nothing of that. Love is not proud. How about putting it that way? Love is not proud. You know, you could search the scriptures over and over again. You'd be hard-pressed to find the more detestable sin in the Bible than pride. In Proverbs 6 and 17, the Bible reminds us that God hates it. God hates pride. One writer put it this way, there is one sin that has damned more souls than any other, the sin of pride. And as I search the scripture, the writer says, I find that God hates the sin of pride seemingly more than any other sin. Why? Because it robs him of his glory. And through it, his rebellious creatures, sinless creatures, sinful creatures, try to take from him the throne that rightly belongs to him. Pride makes God irrelevant. It is a a spiritual cancer that eats away at all things Christian and all things glorious. Pride causes us, beloved, to be quick to criticize and slow to receive criticism. Pride causes us to despise reproof. Pride causes us to judge others while all the time not realizing that it's us who is being judged. Alvin Plantinger put it this way. He said, pride causes us to give people a piece of our minds, which we can all ill afford to lose. Pride causes us to get easily offended because we are more concerned with ourselves than other people actually are. Bible here is reminding us is that love does not brag. If envy, if envy is desiring what others do or what others have, then bragging is speaking in such a way that would make people want to desire what we do or what we have. So brag, bragging tends to lead others to envy. That's why it's not loving. We brag all the time. Christians bragging. 
This is what Paul deals with in 1 Corinthians. Dealing with this issue of bragging. Paul reminds them of their bragging and who they know. That's what we do. We brag about who we know. He tells them in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 12 where he says, What I mean is that one of you says, I follow Paul. Another says, I follow Paulus. Another says, I follow Cephas. I know Paul. I've been hanging out with Paul. Yeah, but I've been hanging out with Apollos. Oh, yeah, well, I've been hanging out with Peter. We do it all the time. Heard somebody say the other day, well, you know, I go to Tony Carter's church. (laughs) I didn't know that Tony Carter had a church. (laughs) I go to John Piper's church. I go to Mark Devers' church. Nothing but bragging, nothing but boasting in who you know. We not only brag in who we know, we, we brag, and this bragging causes us to flaunt our sin. 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, Paul says to the Corinthians, it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. And of a kind that is not even tolerated even among the pagans. For a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant, he says. You are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? That's what bragging does. That's what boasting does. It causes us to take lightly our sin. We end up parading it around. This is an awful thing, beloved. And the more it grips a heart, the more likely they are to parade it. This, this should not amaze us. This should not amaze us. And the homosexual movement doesn't just want to have rights, but they want to put it in your face. They want parades. They want days. They want to flaunt it all in the streets. Paul says, rather than being arrogant, you should mourn. You should mourn over your sin. That's what pride does. That's what boasting does. It causes us to flaunt our sin rather than mourn over it not only do we brag about who we know not only do we flaunt our sin but we get puffed up by what we know Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 1 that knowledge puffs up love builds up knowledge puffs up love builds up because we get puffed up in in what we know and we are quick to share what we know the unloving person beloved is the person who is not quick to listen but they're quick to speak because they believe that they have the tidbit of knowledge and understanding that will just open up all mysteries and solve all problems to the present conversation And the more we know, the more we want others to know that we know. That's why Paul makes the dichotomy between knowledge puffing up, but love builds 
means that I am seeking to be a better listener than I am a talker. It means that I am genuinely interested in hearing what God is doing in your life more than I am in making sure you hear about mine. That's love. This week I was reminding myself over and over again that God is not impressed with me. Why should I believe you should be? Beloved, there is no place for the proud and for the arrogant in the presence of Christ. Because we do understand that when the Bible speaks about love, when the Bible says what love is, the Bible is saying what God is. When the Bible says what love is, the Bible is saying what Christ is. And that means when the Bible says that love is not boastful, that love is not arrogant, it means that Christ is not boastful, that Christ is not arrogant. And he who had everything for which to boast, he who had everything over which to be arrogant was the least arrogant of all. In John chapter 5, verse 19, Jesus himself said, Truly I say to you, a son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what what he sees his father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. Jesus is saying, it's not about me. It's about the father. It's not what I do. It's what the father is doing through me. I do nothing of my own accord. I only do what the father has commanded me to do. That's love. Love is not envious. Love is not boastful or arrogant. And lastly, love is not rude. The idea here is that love is not shameful. Love is not disgraceful. Love is not dismissive of people. It's not dismissive of people. It does not take the personhood and being of others lightly. Love behaves, beloved. It's what it means. Love behaves. Love is polite. Love is courteous. It means that you are taking others into consideration at all times. It means that when I come over to your house, you ask if I want any macaroni and cheese and you don't cook any. Because you're polite and courteous. And you don't misbehave. I'm just kidding. My kids would love it. And I would love it that they love it. (laughs) But it takes into consideration others. Takes into consideration others when you get dressed. You take it into consideration others who are around you. Take into consideration of what you eat and how you eat and 
what you say and how you say it and when you say it. Love treats people with dignity and respect. The King James puts it this way. Love doth not behave unseemly. Love, beloved, is never inappropriate. All jokes aside, love is never inappropriate. Listen to me, men. The Christian man never is inappropriate. Because he loves. Therefore, he never treats a woman as if she's just a sexual object. Because he's loving. That a woman in the presence of a Christian man ought to feel safe and comforted because she knows he loves her. Because he's not saying inappropriate. He's not behaving inappropriately. He is not behaving unseemly. He's treating her with dignity dignity and respect. Because he loves her. Oh, I pray that we would be a church where young girls and young boys can be freely and about themselves, knowing that they are loved, never under the threat of anybody doing anything inappropriate. Because we are a church that loves. That's what loving is, men. It means we always behave in ourselves. That women are safe in our presence. And they know they're not going to be taken advantage of. Ladies, that's what loving means. It means that you're willing to possess your body with dignity and your mind with dignity. That the love and respect that you receive is the love and respect that you demonstrate. Means that you love others by not being flirtatious. It means that you love others by not giving over to innuendo because love cares too much than to cause a brother or sister to stumble. Love cares and love minds its manners. It means, therefore, ladies, that you're watching your mouth and your conversation, that there's no coarse or unclean conversation, words coming out of your mouth so as to give the impression that you are anything but a child of God. That's loving. It's loving each other because we don't behave ourselves inappropriately. Love is not envious. Love is not boastful. Love is not arrogant. Love is not rude. 
Last week, we looked at love, and we looked at it as a tree that produces fruit, good fruit. And what is the fruit that love is producing this morning? Do you notice the transition? Do you notice that love does not produce envy? Love does not produce boasting. Love does not produce arrogance. Love does not produce rudeness. Well, if it doesn't produce those things, then this morning, what are the fruit of love? What does it produce? Last week, it was patience. Last week, it was kindness. Today, we see, since love is not producing the bad fruit of envy and boasting and arrogance and rudeness, and it does produce the good fruit of contentment and humility. Notice again the definition that Edwards gave. He says, envy may be defined to be a spirit of dissatisfaction with and opposition to the prosperity and happiness of others as compared with our own. Why is love not envious? The reason that love is not envious is because love looks to Christ and finds its contentment there. Love is not envious because I don't spend all my time looking at what you have. I am content with what Christ has given me. That's why it's not envious. If I am contented with Christ, if I know that I have all that God desires for me to have and I can be happy and glad in Christ, then I can do what Paul says in Romans chapter 12, and that is rejoice with those who rejoice. Because whatever you receive is not taking anything away. From what God has for me. And I can be content with that. Love is contentment. beloved, And so we need to understand that the only cure for envy is the gospel itself. It is to see that no matter what anybody else has. When it comes to the cross of Christ. We're all on equal ground. And I don't have to be envious of you because when I see the Christ, when I see the cross, I understand that you are not loved more than I am. The same blood that flowed from the cross of Christ to the forgiveness of your sins is the same blood that flows to mine. I can be contented with Christ and I don't need to envy you because I have Jesus. And that's enough. And that's enough. This is why we don't envy the world. There's no need to envy the world. As, as one preacher put it, don't envy the mouse for the cheese in the strap. That's all the world is doing. They're mice gnawing on a big chunk of cheese. But the cheese is in a trap. And sooner or later, the trap is going to spring. And what do we do? We're envying for all the cheese they're chewing on. Beloved, we don't need to envy the mice for the cheese that's in his trap. 
for the love, for cure for the love of the world is love of Christ. They can have all the cheese they want. I got Jesus. They can have run after all the pleasures and the fulfillment of the flesh they want. I have Jesus. And one day that trap is going to spring on them. But one day the heavens are going to open up and blessings are going to flow down on me. I need not envy the world because I have Christ. And that's enough. That's why we don't need to be envious. Rather, we need to look to Christ. We look to Christ and we know that he is more impressed with my repentance than he is with your gifts. And I don't need to envy. I need to repent. We need to look to Christ and know that the loving Christian is the contented Christian. For the complaining Christian is not the loving Christian, beloved. The mumbling Christian is not the loving Christian. The grumbling Christian is not the loving Christian. The loving Christian is the contented Christian. And it is that Christian that other Christians want to be around. Because the love that flows from them. Because of the grace that is in their lives. The loving Christian is the Christian who is satisfied and who is happy in Jesus. He is pleased to love others because he is pleased and happy in Jesus. That's what love produces. It produces contentment. I don't need to be envious. I am contented in the love of Christ. Not only produces envy this morning, I mean, not only produces contentment this morning, but it also produces humility. The reason that love is not boastful, the reason that love is not proud, the reason that love is not arrogant is because true love produces the fruit of humility. Why is it not boastful and arrogant? Because love looks at Christ and realizes that I have nothing for which to boast. I have nothing for which to boast. Consider this morning. Just consider this morning all that you have. Consider all the knowledge that you have. Consider all the understanding of scripture that you have. Consider the wonderful relationships that you have. Consider the wonderful wife, the wonderful parents. Consider the wonderful husband. Consider the wonderful church you have. Consider the wonderful sermon you're privileged to hear this morning. Consider all these wonderful things. And then look. 1 Corinthians. Chapter 4 and verse 7, where the Bible says, What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if 
you did not receive it. God's beloved, whatever we have, we received it. This is why love produces humility, because the gospel cure for boasting again is the love of Christ. The gospel cure for boasting is beholding Jesus Christ and he who had everything over which to boast humbled himself. This is why the Bible says in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 14, but far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. You see that? You see that? I'm not envious of the world because of the cross. I'm not boasting in myself because of the cross. Because in the cross, I find contentment. In the cross, I see humility displayed. And in the cross, I make my boast. Love is not proud. Because Christ is not proud. Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 3. The Bible says this, beloved. Do nothing from, from rivalry or conceit. In other words, do nothing out of envy. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. In other words... Don't be arrogant. Don't be prideful. Don't be boastful. Count others as more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not on your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind in you that was in Christ Jesus. Have the mind of Christ. What type of mind did Christ have? His mind was full of love. His mind was humble. Notice what it says. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. The cross is is the cure because love of Christ is the cure have this mind in you is also in Christ Jesus because Christ is not envious Christ is not arrogant Christ is not boastful Christ is not rude Christ is loving how does Christ love? He loved by lifting you and me. That's how he loved. He loved by giving himself for you and for me. That's how he loved. That's why the song 
It's so appropriate. It's why the song is so right when it says, I was sinking deep in sin far from the peaceful shore. Very deeply stained within, sinking to rise no more. But the master of the sea heard my despairing cry. From the waters, he lifted me. Now safe am I. What lifted me? Love lifted me. Love lifted me. When nothing else could help, it was love that lifted me. R.C. Sproul writes a book on the holiness of God. John Piper writes a book on desiring God. We sit here and work and understand messages on the love of God. All of us know what what, what the Bible says. We all know And the Bible says to be holy. We all know that the Bible says to be loving. We all know that the Bible says we are to desire God. We all know those things. The problem isn't what we know. The problem is what we believe. Do we believe it every day? Are we pursuing love every day? If you're anything like me, your answer to that question is no. That's why I need Jesus. That's why ultimately this passage reminds me again, I'm nowhere near as loving as I need to be. I'm too proud. I'm too arrogant. I'm too envious. I'm too rude. That's why I come and I want to look to Jesus. I want to be reminded that it's Christ. It's always Christ. It must be Christ. It is Christ who has lifted me. It is Christ who continues to lift me. It is Christ who has loved me. It is Christ who continues to love me. It is about Jesus. Oh, beloved. As we come again to the Lord's table this morning, there we see a humble God, a humble Savior, a loving Savior, a Savior who has lifted us according to his mercy, according to his grace, has loved us with an everlasting love. And he comes and he says, now, Love one another. Let us come to the Lord's table and be reminded that indeed we do have Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, your word continues to convict us of our sin. Remind us how far we are away from the perfection that will one day be ours. 
And yet we cling to the promise that he who has loved us is perfecting us. That he is making us over. That we are being transformed into his image. Moment by moment and day by day. Oh, Father, continue your work in our lives. Encourage us, cause us to be more loving. Cause us to be more like Christ. As we come to your table this morning, Lord, might we be encouraged, might we be strengthened, might we be renewed in your love for us, even in our love for one another. Thank you for your spirit. We thank you for your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.